Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is your co-host, Matt Zemek, along with Sakib Ali. Indian Wells time. Wait a minute. This isn't the first week of March. It's the first week of October. But yes, this is one of the remaining pandemic alterations to the 2021 tennis calendar. Uh, we think, we're, it's not an absolute guarantee, but we think that in 2022, we're going to have a normal at least as normal as uh, we, it can be, uh, tennis calendar. But the Indian Wells being in October is a final vestige of how how different this 2021 pandemic season still has been. I mean, nothing's going to top 2020, but 2021 still has had a few distinct curveballs, uh, and some of them have had a real impact on the year, like uh, you know the Olympics being crammed in after Wimbledon, which was crammed in after Roland Garros. He didn't have the normal three-week break between Roland Garros and Wimbledon. So that was kind of a, a crunch on the calendar. And you could say that that caught up with Novak Djokovic, who, by the way, you know, is not playing in Indian Wells. But uh, anyway, um, we come to the Southern California desert, not in March when everything's in bloom, but in October, as the days get shorter, it's going to be a very different flavor. And so, Sakib, as I bring you on uh, to start this podcast, um, let's just start with some general impressions about you know what you're interested in, storylines, players, just a kind of a general view of the tournament before we get into some of the deeper details here. Uh, I think Matt Djokovic himself is a good point, right? So a lot of us expected after... Uh, I mean, I can't speak for you or Mert for anyone, but I thought, you know, we had uh, discussed or maybe in a DM or somewhere that, you know, this this was going to be uh, his schedule. Like he may just appear later on for like Percy or the year-end championships. So are, are you are you on the same page? Did you expect this? This was too soon after the U.S. Open. You know, he's he's gone through a very special year, uh, missed on, you know, making some special, special history at the end. But, uh, you know, he has to be emotionally fatigued and just, you know, probably needs a break to reset his uh, batteries and, you know, goals for the year end and more importantly for Australia next year. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we saw the, the tidal wave of very strong emotions that hit Djokovic uh, during, and especially after the U S open final against Daniil Medvedev. I mean, he was, he was in a place that Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal, as great as they are, as great as they've been, he was in a place that Federer Nadal never occupied. And, you know, no one can really, I mean, Rod Laver is the only man alive who can truly put himself in the place of uh, Novak Djokovic and understand what was going through his mind. And even then, it's still not a, a clean and neat comparison because when Laver was going for the Grand Slam in 69, he had already done it in 62. So it's not as though... He was trying to do it for the only time in his career. And the open era, you know, it was just two years old back then. That was the second year of the open era. So it's not as though, you know, first man in the open era. Well, it was a two-year sample size. It's not as though the open era had existed for 53 years as it had when Djokovic took the court. So, and the media scrutiny uh, for tennis you know, the fact that that event was played, the 69 U.S. Open was played at Forest Hills, just a very different vibe, um, very different feel to everything back then. So 
Rod Laver can could relate to Djokovic in, in on a, on several levels, and yet on many other levels he can't. Like imagine Laver being in today's fishbowl, today's social media world, uh, and 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 putting you know Laver and also those other Australians uh, in in that context. It's 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 really hard to do. So yes, the long and short of it is that Novak Djokovic definitely needs. Uh, a mental health break needs to be with his family needs to just really decompress after everything that he went through uh, this year. And, you know, we saw him, you know, be, we saw his emotions, not just at the final of the U S open, but we also saw those emotions at the Olympics. Another thing that, you know, he's been trying to chase down in his career. And when you try, when you spend a career chasing down something and you don't get it, that is an emotional moment. And this is not a criticism of Djokovic at all. You know, it, I would expect there to be uh, significantly intense uh, emotions. And, you know, Djokovic has chased down accomplishments Federer and Nadal don't have. He's chased down four majors in a row, just didn't do it in the calendar year, but he did win four majors, something that Roger and Rafa didn't. He's won all nine of the Masters 1000s. I mean, so he's done special things that others, uh, especially as two great peers, uh, have not done. So for him to, to be so close to a couple more seminal tennis achievements and then not get them, yeah, that is powerfully emotional. And so, you know, he, he should, in fact, take time off, mentally refresh. I would expect him to contest the ATP finals uh, since that's a signature year-end event. And, uh, you know, you have year-end number one that's also part of the calculus but but he did he does not need indian wells for year-end number one i mean it would be nice but if you're a player of djokovic's stature you don't play events just because it would be nice to do something you do something because it's part of the plan it's part of a larger vision and indian wells in october definitely not an essential part of anything that novak djokovic really needs to do right now prepare for the atp finals and then, of course, um, to take another break and be ready for the Australian Open and another run at the Grand Slam next year. Yeah, I think uh, total agreement there. So let's uh, talk about the tournament uh, itself. It's being held in late October. You know, usually this uh, coincides with some sort of March madness when it's about to start. And right now, you know, we're having NFL. And just like an odd time, uh, th at this time, you know, usually the ATP the, the men and, and I think even the WTA women are heading towards to Asia and the Asian swing is not on the books this year. So it's just a very different field. So Matt, I mean, uh, and you and I were just talking about this. So uh, unpack this for us, like what this will mean, like, you know, within months we will be having this tournament again. And uh, it's just going to be, you know, <laughs> uh, like twice in six months, players will be in the desert. Yeah, I mean, if you thought that the turnaround from Roland Garros 2020 to Roland Garros 2021 was quick, this is two months quicker than that, you know, because Roland Garros in late May. So actually, it's actually almost it's almost three months quicker, you know, that we're, we're going to we're going to have one more month of tennis in 2021. Then we close up shot for the year and then we get to the, the Australian Open back in its normal January slot. And then after that, what's the next big event on the calendar? Indian Wells. It's going to be back here again for another go around before we know it. And uh, 
So that, so that in itself is weird. But here's the bigger thing, Sakib, is that, you know, you know this as well as I do. Anyone who covers tennis knows this. But it's just it's worth saying just as a kind of a reminder, a refresher. And that is that Indian Wells is kind of a lead in tournament. It's a it's a building block tournament for this season. I mean, Australia is kind of out there on an island in January. And then, in, you know, in February, there are no 1000 point uh, tournaments. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of one of the slower months of the year. I mean, there are tournaments, but like February doesn't have high end tournaments. And, and this year you're, you're going to have the Beijing Olympics, uh, uh, Winter Olympics, taking up uh, the, the global sports focus for everybody. And so, um, you know, having Indian Wells in October, there's nothing about this year's event, which is a lead in. I mean, you could say for a narrow sliver of players, Sakib, you know, the players who are right around the borderline for the WTA and ATP finals, you know, players trying to make the cut for the, the year-end championships. For those players, this is a very, very significant tournament. But for the rest of the field, I mean, beyond just, you know, prize money and, and rankings points, you know, which are going to exist for every tournament, um, you know, there isn't the same sense of, okay, this is a cornerstone building block moment for the rest of the tennis year. When, when Indian Wells is in early March, this tournament really is the first of a series of significant events. But in, in early October, that first in a series feel, that particular dynamic, it really doesn't apply. So what I'm going to be fascinated by, Sakib, in this tournament, men and women, is just how much of an effect this tournament does have on players going into 2022. And, 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 you know, I don't have a strong feel for how this tournament will, in fact, influence any player in, in 2022. You know, if someone wins this, is this going to be a catapult of some kind? I mean, maybe it could, but, like, I have absolutely no feel because it's in this very weird spot on the calendar, I would say that whoever wins 2022 Indian Wells uh, would be in a much better position to kind of uh, construct a 2022 tennis season, which, you know, uh, achieves significant goals. Uh, this tournament in October, it's, it is such a mystery, not, not just in terms of the present moment and what's going to happen in these two weeks in Southern California, but how it predicts the future next March, I think, would, would be much more in line with a, a normal Indian Wells experience in terms of setting the table for the rest of the year. So I guess um, the, the, the biggest picture uh, I can create, the, 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 the most important thing I can say about this is that, you know, we're going to have another Indian Wells tournament soon. So the, the, the most important thing I could say might be this, and that is, will this tournament lead to a breakthrough in Melbourne in January uh, for the players who make the championship match uh, and win the championship. You know, if someone has a spectacular run here, um, is that going to translate to the Australian Open? And then we have another Indian Wells cycle later. But so we're kind of operating in this very narrow box of, you know, a handful of players trying to make the year-end championships and, and then players trying to, use what they're doing now uh, as a catapult for Melbourne uh, in January. I think those like are the two future oriented storylines. And I don't think we can project the future beyond uh, Australia in January.
No, I think uh, uh, I have no disagreement there. And I would just like to add, uh, usually, you know, what I mentioned is the Asian swing and uh, the guys who were here for the Labor Cup, the handful of the top guys stayed in the United States, unless, you know, they probably, you know, uh, went back home. I don't know. So they, it's a safe assumption that they practice here the week in Boston and then they moved to California. But there are likes of, you know, people who are playing in France, like including Andy Murray, uh, you know, some of these guys came back to San Diego. Now they'll be in Indian Wells. So there was this like, you know, little cross-continental travel, which is not the norm at this point of the year, unless you're going to Asia. So uh, I was just looking at uh, a random stat, I don't know, for Boris Becker. Yeah, guess what? That name appears in all my podcasts. But in 1984, you know, like we talk about how the ATP schedule is a mess. Listen to this schedule now. Becker plays Monte Carlo and then goes to Atlanta a week after to play indoor carpet. Then he goes to Vegas to play outdoor hard. And then in a couple of weeks, he's back playing in Europe at the clay in Rome, and then he plays Roland Garros. So that's a nightmare schedule, even though it was separated by weeks in between. So this is, again, a pandemic year. So that was, you know, just uh, a reference. You know, we all say ATP is bad and needs to improve, but imagine, you know, that kind of a schedule. You know, we all would be complaining. We all would be in fumes, you know, like what that schedule was. Of course, it's 37 years ago. world has changed a lot since. Uh, so, but yeah, I, I think uh, going back to the tournament itself, you're right. Absolutely. This is still a big tournament. Djokovic is not here because, you know, he's in a different space in his career. You know, he's won these tournaments. He has to, you know, preserve and just, you know, get back his, you know, energy in the right direction, which is, you know, he wants to win more majors and he needs a break, which is totally understandable. But, you know, guess what? The other guys are hungry. And I was just looking at the top four guys here, Medvedev, uh, Sitsipas, Zverev and Rublev. I did a rough math. I think between them, they might have played like 14 or 13 main draws at Indian Wells. And Sasha Zverev was the only guy who made round of 16 when he lost to Nadal in 2016. Otherwise, if you take that run out, all four of them have never crossed the round of 32. There's like total eight wins. So guess what? All these guys come back to the scene of prime as different players. Medvedev, the man to beat, US Open champion. You know, Zverev has made a lot of strides. Sitsipas is a world-class player. And Rublev is just knocking that door to be in the conversation. And so is Kasper Ruud. So who's going to win this tournament? Uh, I'll be very surprised if there's, you know, anyone out of these five or maybe let's throw in Matteo Berrettini in there. It's going to be, you know, a very interesting follow because... You know, outside of Djokovic, these seem these four or five names are the names that you know we've been talking about, and I think we will be talking about you know in the future podcasts unless something seriously changes. Yeah, I'm not saying other names can't join this, so it'll be very interesting. You know, Medvedev will be the man to beat. I haven't seen the odds. You know, I just glanced at the draw. Him and Rublev are slated to meet in the semis, and in the bottom half is uh, Sitsipas and Zverev. So, yeah, I think these three guys are the top favorites, even under Rublev. You know, can win this thing. He hasn't done it uh, yet. I, I won't be surprised if it happens here, but I still think, you know, Medvedev is probably, you know, trying to position himself with more and more titles and, you know, make that weekend tour and, you know, like a nice opportunity to push Novak for the lead. I think it's Novak's race to lose if he shows up. The lead is immense. Daniel has to run the table to even, you know, make that a mathematical possibility. But at this point, I think these, it's, it's very safe, you know, like there are a lot of other players. You know, there should be, you know, Anakashima's siding there. I mean, TFO is playing well. Oji Alisim has made a lot of strides. So there's like Korda is there. A lot of good names to follow because this is still a big, big tournament. You know, uh, all the yeah, young... Sakin. 
let me let me jump in here. You know, I was gonna I was interested in what your hierarchy of of likely favorites or contenders was for this tournament. So you've said you know the top four uh, that that that's really your your main block. So my question would be, which player outside the top four are you looking at as you know a, a dangerous player or perhaps a player you know who ha- who really has a lot to prove and whom you're going to be looking at at Indian Wells. That's um, that's a good question. I mean, a lot to prove as in like whose time is running out, a lot to prove to take advantage of the opportunity and, you know, either one. Yeah, you can go, you can take it in any direction. Mm. It's like, I know that you're a Casper Rude fan, but you know, his, his, uh, his, uh, his, his chat, you know, his titles, his especially good tournaments have come on clay. He hasn't really invested himself in hardcore tennis to the extent that he probably should be. I mean, you know, I, I don't necessarily blame him. You know, Clay's his strong suit. So, you know, he played post-Wimbledon Clay and he won some titles. And so, you know, he maxed out on that opportunity and he's seated number six here. That's a really high seed for him. It is. I mean, I mean you just... Felix at seven, you know, you have some interesting players who aren't normally top eight seeds who are now in position with, with a top eight seed uh, to make use of a comparatively better draw. So I'm wondering if just from that kind of pool of players or maybe someone completely off the radar, maybe someone like Van de Zanschulp, um, you know, if, if that's a player that who is uh, uh, someone you're going to be looking at, uh, at during this fortnight in Southern California. I'm going to just uh, yeah, narrow it down to, you know, there are a lot of good guys. I mean, I, I want to focus on how Opelka does, how TFO does, but I think the race to tour in the, you know, year-end championship is heating up. And uh, Sasha Zverev should be a lock pretty soon because he is sitting at like 4,000-odd points. But I think uh, with Nadal, uh, you know, out of the year and team out of the year, I think some of these guys, at the, at the, you know, like uh, Hubi Hurkacz is one I'm always interested in. But Kasper Ruud just winning uh, the title in San Diego this past weekend over Cam Nori. I think he's another guy who's, you know, it, it could be his race to lose. I think if he keeps winning, I think he only has points to gain. So I think all these guys are really, I think, uh, uh, gunning for that because that's still the prize ATP tournament. Like you want to conf- get confirmed. And now with so many withdrawals, like, you know, and uh, with Nadal out, I think there's one extra position, you know, if because Nadal would have finished the year, I think, in contention, even if he was inactive, he had so many points. So... Yeah, I think Kasper Ruud is definitely one of those guys. Oji Aliasim is one of those guys. He beat Tsitsipas here when this tournament was played last time. Uh, he beat him, in the, I think, in the opening round, 6-2-7-5. So, yeah, I mean, I'm looking at uh, these two guys and uh, even Hubi Hurkacz. I think I expect uh, all of them to make stride and have a very uh, competitive year-end. Who, who gets to, you know, year-end championships? And, uh, and, and the big guys are, you know, the obvious three we've talked about few times uh, in this, you know, next-gen or younger players. And uh, Shapovalov is one guy, actually, I'll even throw there. You know, like, I want to see him play good because since reaching the Wimbledon semis, he really hasn't played well. He won a couple of rounds in in the U.S. Open, got manhandled by Lloyd Harris. It's not a bad loss. But then he was destroyed by Daniel Medvedev at the Labor Cup. 6-4, 6-love. I think 4-3 deuce and Shapo didn't win a game. And then same thing happened last week in San Diego. He was uh, pretty easily beaten by Cam Nori, three and one. So I don't know what's going on there. That's the last big tournament on the outdoor in North America. And uh, Dennis seemed like, you know, heading the right direction. But since reaching 
the Wimbledon semis and losing to Novak, I bet he's just won, I think, three or four matches. So I think, okay, yeah, that's that's the answer. I think I, I'm interested in his week more than Hubi Hurkacz and uh, Kasparu and Oji Aliasin because I think all three of them are in good form, win or lose. Their, their tennis doesn't need a spark. I think Chapo needs to put something back on the road here. Who, who, who do you think in a short list, I mean? Uh, if I throw the same question back at you, I know you have been busy with football and other commitments, but uh, if you were to pick one guy on the men's side whose this tournament is, you know, intriguing in some sort of a point to prove or opportunity to grab, who's that guy? Yeah, I, I'm going to say it's Felix um, because, you know, at Wimbledon, I mean, he, remember, Kyrgios was probably going to beat him if Kyrgios's body had had held up but of course Nick Kyrgios doesn't take great care of his body so Felix got through that match without really being the better player given the time that was spent on court so that was that was a fortunate little break and then he played you know uh, uh, the passive not confident uh, non-aggressive version of Alexander Zverev in the fourth round and, and he got and he was able to win that match now, you know certainly very impressive to beat Zverev uh, in a four-hour match at a major. You know, the, we, we can say that, but we can also say that Zverev uh, was not even close to the player he was in Tokyo and, and also uh, for much of his U.S. Open run. You know, that was the version of Zverev uh, that can go places on tour. Now, he's, you know, Zverev still had his fifth set mental block against Djokovic, but, you know, Zverev definitely played much better tennis, much closer to the standard that we expect from him in Tokyo and in New York. But at Wimbledon, Felix caught the the version of Zverev that, you know, just is not uh, a, a, a top-tier player uh, on tour. And, and so Felix is really in a unique position in that, you know, can he start to put together – I mean, he, may, he made the semifinals in New York, but can he start to put together results which don't feel so much like well, the draw opened up or, well, the, you know, he didn't catch players when, when they were playing particularly well. Can Felix Ojealiasim start to not only build results, I mean, he's building results, but can he start to do that in a way which makes you think, well, hey, he's the big dog on tour. You know, he's simply the better player. Uh, he's simply the, the guy who's ascendant at the moment. Can he begin to cultivate that identity. And, you know, he's, so he's taken strides in the right direction, but, you know, we've seen with, with so many different ATP players, uh, most notably Sitsipas, you know, the, the going to a fifth set of a Roland Garros final, it was not a catapult for him. It was in, in many ways an albatross. Uh, it, it was a burden that he carried the, the, through the summer uh, instead of uh, something that, you know, lifted him, to a higher plane. So even, even for players, when they make certain breakthroughs that we'd been waiting for, for some time, it doesn't necessarily translate to a continued upward linear trajectory, a steady continued rise. That's not necessarily how it works. And so with Felix having established some good results, but under some circumstances that, you know, were really favorable to him, uh, I want to see him begin to win matches and begin to advance in tournaments in ways that leave behind no doubt, you know, in, in, in the sense that it's just about Felix being excellent. We don't have to throw in these qualifiers or these details about the circumstances 
so so for that reason, uh, Felix is is really interesting to me. I want to make a separate uh, comment, Saka, because you know this Indian Wells tournament is so unique and and so different uh, compared to what we normally see. And that is that, you know, in terms of track records at Indian Wells, let's keep in mind, this is the first Indian Wells that's being held in two and a half years. The last Indian Wells was 2019 when we had Dominic team beating Roger Federer in the final two and a half years ago, kind of feels like 22 and a half years ago, <laughs> given how much has happened since then. But it just brings up the point socket that, uh, when when saying that players haven't done well at Indian Wells, it's it's a true thing. It's a factual thing. And yet at this particular tournament, under these circumstances, that kind of thing doesn't really hold all that much value because you have a two and a half year time lag since the last Indian Wells tournament. So that's kind of a wrinkle here. Uh, and, and there's also just the point that, especially with a guy like Zverev, I know I question if Zverev is going to be motivated to play at this tournament. It's not an excuse if he loses, but just let's be realistic about this. Zverev is trying to chase down a major title. You know, he's trying to prove that he can be the big dog in a five set match against the best of the best on tour. And so after everything that happened to him in New York and after the way his tournament ended, I mean, if I'm Alexander Zverev and I make the trip from Europe uh, to Southern California for this tournament, I'm thinking, gee, do I really want to be here? I mean, I mean, he might want to be here on a kind of a general level, but like, is he really going to be deeply hungry for this tournament? Is he going to be deeply passionate about winning another uh, 1000 point tournament in best of three set matches? when he knows that, you know, his biggest goal just passed him by, it barely eluded him. Um, you know, may, maybe we're at a point where Alexander Zverev is going to be a professional in the sense that no matter what the circumstance is, he's going to bring it his best. He's going to, he's going to play the right way and he's going to, you know, turn a corner in terms of how he carries himself over the course of a full tennis season. Maybe the new Zverev is, is upon us, but I have to think that after the U.S. Open and that particular disappointment, I, I, I just am not expecting him to go all out for this tournament the same way he went all out at the Olympics at the U.S. Open. So for me, there's a real motivational question for both Zverev and also Tsitsipas. I think that Medvedev, you know, we've, we saw it in 2019. He tastes some success. He gets into a rhythm. He can get on a roll, not just for one or two tournaments, but he can get on a roll for a few months. So, you know, the, he's in a, in a very different place. He has that major trophy. He should be very relaxed. I put Medvedev in a very different category from Zverev and Tsitsipas, not just based on the U.S. Open, but based on the, the, the placement of this tournament on the calendar. I just don't get the sense that Zverev and Tsitsipas are going to say, wow, this is a defining tournament for me. I really have to sharpen up, sharpen up. I really have to dig in like my professional reputations on the line. I'm just not expecting that kind of urgency from Zverev and Tsitsipas where I can see Medvedev just being in his comfort zone, doing what he does. Uh, that that's the backdrop for this men's tournament as I see it. No, I think that's an excellent point. And I think we can even have a debate, but not to just challenge you. I would just say you're absolutely right. You hit the nail on the head there. 
if Zverev and Tsitsipas, you know, want to follow the lead of the big three and Andy Murray's and start winning these big titles, you know, the legacy shows, these guys showed up at all the 13 important tournaments. And in, you know, Nadal's case, Barcelona, Federer's case, Basel, and Djokovic's case, Dubai, they all picked other tournaments, but it was 13 tournaments, the majors and nine 1000s, where they played their best tennis. And if you are Sasha Zverev, and if you are Stefano Tsitsipas, and you think the disappointment of US Open and disappointment of Wimbledon is, you know, you're looking at Australia, I think you, you're missing the, I think you're missing the big prize, because I think to get there, you know, the mindset has to be week in, week out and show your closest rival in your age group, Daniel Medvedev, that this is not going to be a walk in the park. And you need to pile up these masters. Zverev has won five, and I think Medvedev's close to sitting at five. They should have started their own race. And I'll be very disappointed if any of these guys just come in this tournament slightly below motivated. But I think you do have a good point, and it will be, you know, we'll see how the week turns out. And uh, let, let me ask you a very different question before we switch to the women's draw. So there are these four names, Matt. I'm looking at the race to the rear in championship. Sitting at the number seven spot is Kasparud. Number eight spot is Hubi Hurkacz, followed by Yannick Sinner, who also won a tournament in France last week. And then number 10 spot is Felix Ogier-Aliassime. So a few tournaments we've played. Rude has like mathematical edge right now. He's sitting at 2,900 points and Felix at 2,300. Which one of these four, which two of these four will make the cut? If, we, if I just ask you today, let's take a guess or you go with the gut feel. Yeah, it's pretty hard to argue against a 600-point lead. Uh, that's that's a fair amount of points uh, at the, at this stage of the game, and and it, so it it makes Felix's margin for error, you know, given his standing, um, you know, you know, comparatively smaller compared compared to Casper Ruud. So I, I would just apply a straight points-based uh, probability rating, you know, in terms of who makes the cut, uh, just because. You know, I don't have a strong feel for how any of these guys are going to respond to an October Indian Wells. Like if, if I had a well mapped out sense of how, um, you know, this, some of the you know the players near the cut line for the for the ATP finals were going to perform, um, you know, I would be able to maybe uh, have a different, more adjusted probability rating. Um, but my only really strong sense of the men's tournament is, you know, Medvedev and being in a good spot. Zverev and Tsitsipas not. Uh, other than that, I really don't know. So I'm, I would just go strictly on the points uh, in that regard. And if Hubi Hurkacz wins this tournament, will you still call it a sunshine double? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have to, right? <laughs> you know, it's a sunshine double. Who the, the sunshine just uh, had two different sunsets? Yeah, it's crazy. And you can have a yeah. It's just weird. You'll have two Indian Wells champions before you crown the next Miami champion. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, th th there was a, to use a baseball analogy, there was a doubleheader earlier this year. Uh, and the first game got played, the second game got postponed by rain. And that second game got made up a few months later. It was still part of a doubleheader, just the doubleheader was have one leg played one day and one leg played in, uh, a few days later. Still counts as a doubleheader sweep if you win both halves. Absolutely. So on that note, let me ask you about the women's draw. Some big names are missing. Uh, what, what do you? What is the high-level overview when you look at this draw? And you know, what are some of the storylines that you know you will be keen to follow? Yeah. So Ash Barty, Arena Sabalenka, Sabalenka due to COVID, and Naomi Osaka all out. So that's the top three. So you know, it obviously means that this is anybody's tournament to win. 
Um, yeah, now, one could get into a debate about whether this would have been anybody's tournament to win, even if Barty uh, was still playing, because, you know, we saw Barty, you know, mentally uh, concede uh, at the U.S. Open. Not that she didn't fight. She did fight. But that looked like a mentally exhausted player who had spent the whole year on the road and she was ready to come back to Australia, to her family, to a familiar home, a familiar bed, a familiar pillow. Um, you know, and, I, and I was on record as saying that I didn't like Barty's or Osaka's chances in New York just because of all the, the particular things they were going through emotionally, mentally, and otherwise. It just didn't seem to line up. Now, obviously, I had no clue whatsoever that we'd get Emma Raducanu and Leila Fernandez in the final. I don't think anyone did. But nevertheless, Barty and Osaka, even if they had come to Indian Wells to play, I wouldn't really rate their chances uh, all that much just because of the unique circumstances that accompanied them over the past several months. So in other words, this was going to be a wide open tournament, even if Barty and Osaka had played. I think Sabalenka might be a slightly different story in that you know, she had made a number of semifinals, uh, you know, important semifinals uh, at Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. She's been a very steady player, much like Barty. I think she had a really good chance here if she'd been able to play. And, and then, unfortunately, COVID-19 uh, got in the way of that. So what do we have? What do we have left as significant storylines? To me, uh, the, the, if, I, if I had to pick a single most interesting player, at this tournament, it would be Leila Fernandez. Now, some people might say, well, why not Emma Raducanu? Well, I think that for, for Raducanu, like she's she's playing with house money because she has that first major title. And so for, for Fernandez, you could also say she's playing with house money, but you know, she didn't win that major title. Uh, she, she had to settle for the runner-up plate. And so I'll, I, I think it's easy to look at Raducanu and expect a letdown. I think that Fernandez, because precisely because she fell a little bit short in what was a high quality U.S. Open women's final, I'm, a, I'm much more interested in, in, in seeing how she responds uh, to everything that happened uh, in New York. And I think beyond Fernandez, in terms of taking a broader view of this tournament, I'm just looking at players who uh, are trying to fortify themselves such that they become regular uh, productive players on tour at the highest level. Um, Barbara Krachikova, you know, she, she made a good run, uh, in, in New York, but, you know, not, not, uh, not to the semifinals and, and not, and not, not to the final. So like she, you know, she ran into formidable opposition. Uh, Barty beat her at Wimbledon. Sabalenka took care of her, uh, in New York. So like she lost to elite players, it's not as though one would call her runs at Wimbledon uh, or at New York uh, disappointing, but we have this dynamic, Sakib, as you're well aware, that players who make a semifinal or a final at a major tournament uh, in women's tennis, they have a very hard time consistently replicating those results. So I'm interested in seeing, is there going to be a player who does well at Indian Wells, makes the final or at least the semifinals, it, it, will those players who do especially well here, will they use it as a building block for Australia? You know, we're going to have another Indian Wells, of course, in March, but like, is there anyone who's going to use this Indian Wells as a building block for the kind of regular, consistent, high-level results 
which have proved largely elusive uh, in women's tennis. You know, Barty, Barty had a, a really consistent overall year, but made only one major semifinal. Iga Sviantek, you know, did not did, did not regularly make uh, semifinals at majors. You know, can can she develop herself to the point where you know she is regularly making semifinals? I'm looking for anyone on the WTA tour who can eventually build her career to the point where you know she's expected to make two to three major semifinals a year and does it. You know, will we get will we get someone like that? So will this Indian Wells tournament? be the springboard, be a catalyst for a number of players. Now, having said all that, there are certain players for whom I don't think a, a huge Indian Wells result means all that much. Uh, Alina Svitolina, I don't know how much we can assign to her winning Indian Wells, you know, if that would mean anything for how she's going to do at the majors next year. Karolina Pishkova, I, I just don't know if, if we can assign a lot of meaning to Indian Wells, you know, beyond the championship itself, you know, if that's, if that makes her, you know, a higher, uh, better favorite for Australia, but for players who have had trouble establishing a regular residency in the top 10, who have, have had trouble, you know, establishing themselves at the very top tier for various reasons. I mean, the pandemic has obviously played a role in this, but, you know, for anyone trying to, to become, you know, a regular top eight, maybe top five player, uh, will Indian Wells aid in that process? So I'm really thinking of, you know, uh, 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 it's a wide number of players, uh, but really just not Svitolina, not Pliskova, maybe one or two other players, but, you know, like Sviantek, I'd certainly include in that. Sakari, I'd certainly include in that. Krachikova, I'd certainly include in that. And of course, Radu Kanu and Fernandez. Um, will anyone use this Indian Wells tournament as a catalyst for becoming the kind of consistent major tournament player that the WTA generally has not had since Serena Williams became a mom in 2017? No, I can't disagree with much there, but I would also like to throw in the hot and cold Garbini Muguruza, who just won the last tournament she played in Chicago over the weekend. And I was just looking at the draw. She had two walkovers, Matt, in a five tournament, you know, in, in a five match, you know, uh, draw where she won the title. She had a bye in the first round and then she got two walkovers and she beats Ons Shabor in the final. So she's one player. Again, you know, we all talked about and you made the Stan Wawrinka comparison. So let me throw this back at you. What does this do to Garbinia? Because she takes herself very seriously even though sometimes the results don't back it up. She's a big match player. She's tasted major success. So does an Indian well success in the desert, you know, you know, catapult her ear or maybe just put her in contention mentally for Australia, even though that's still a good three months away? Yeah, you know, the, the, that's, a, that's a fascinating case because Muguruza, you know, she's a player who when she tastes what, what ultimate victory feels like, you know, then she gets into a zone where, you know, she, she's at the top of, of women's tennis. And, and she does have that Bafrinka-like uh, ability to not only come out of nowhere to win, but also the ability to go from a prominent place, you know, to, you know, struggles at the drop of a hat, as opposed to being relentlessly, ruthlessly uh, consistent. I think one thing, one thing you mentioned, Sakib, is really important, and that is the time lag, that uh, it's three months until... Uh, Australia. So 
if she wins Indian Wells here and then um, you know doesn't uh, post another result of note before the end of the season, you know, does that mean that she enters 2022, uh, you know, feeling as though like she's ready to do something? That's kind of an open question, but I would I would lean towards saying yes. Um, because in the pandemic um, and, and, and all the disruptions that have been part of that, I think that for a player such as Muguruza, you know, who, uh, you know, played uh, Sophia Kennan in the last major final before the pandemic hit, you know, the 2020 Australian Open final, you know, it, it would have been really interesting to see what might have happened in 2020 if the pandemic had not arrived, if we had had Roland Garros in its normal late May through mid-June slot. You know, Muguruza probably would have been right there. And I think, you know, the, the, the adjusted calendar, the disruption of the rhythms of the tour uh, definitely hurt her. And so given, given uh, the fact that her career has been disrupted in a certain sense, um, and we could say that for other players as well, um, if she wins Indian Wells, I, yeah, I think it means something. I think that you know, getting that taste of victory is something that even with the time lag of three months, yeah, I think that going into 2022, that could really shift her mindset uh, in a way which is decisive, a way which is important. We, we, we also have to remember that she had match point against Naomi Osaka in the 2021 Australian Open. If she wins one of those two match points, imagine how different her 2021 really is so yeah i think that if she wins indian wells that that's a that's a significant turning point for her and it certainly enables conchita martinez to say entering 2022 hey champ you know we just saw you play your very best ball we saw you rise to the top of the heap this is 2022 is going to be your year you just have to go ahead and do it so uh, I, I think it's an open question but i would lean towards saying yeah it, it could be a catalyst for Australia and beyond. Absolutely. So let's wrap this up. Going back to the men's draw, what does this week do to Andy Murray? He's been hitting the ball really well. It doesn't have the results. You know, we all know that, you know, Sitsipas match, and then he's played a couple of other matches since then. Uh, he moves, seems to be moving well, just hasn't put the results. He starts against Manorino. You think a deep run here, like even, say, a round of 16, because he plans to play probably the rest of the year to gain more form and momentum going into Australia. What does that do to someone like him? Yeah, I think that for Murray, it, it really is just being able to stack together wins. And I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe it's not stacking together four or five wins, but let's just start with two or three wins. I think, you know, getting, getting to a point where he can win two mat, at least, at least two matches per tournament, uh, just start establishing that as a baseline, because if you can do that, you're getting a certain amount of points and you're getting a certain amount of rhythm in terms of match play. If you're, if you're winning two matches at a tournament, that means you're playing three and three matches. Um, you know, we kind of went through this with Roger Federer when he was trying to make his comeback in uh, late spring on clay and then on, and then on grass, you know, we, we kept saying get at least three matches uh, out of these, uh, these tournaments uh, you know, before the majors or getting three, three matches at Roland Garros to kind of uh, get his body back into uh, a rhythm before Wimbledon. So I, I think I'd generally apply that same standard to Murray, get three matches, which means two wins out of a series of tournaments, replicate that for a few months. And then uh, after a few months of doing that, then we can think about winning four matches at a tournament. Then we can think about winning maybe five matches. 
but he has to just start winning two or three matches on a fairly regular basis, building that base, building back that standard, getting back the points. And if he can do that, then he can dream bigger dreams uh, in, in 2022. So get, get a couple wins, two wins uh, at least, hopefully three, and then let's see where we can go from there. Sure. No knock on Manorino. I think this, given Murray's current form, this seems, this seems like a good draw if he can, you know, get a W here and, you know, get his account open because last week he played an, played an informed Casper Wood and lost five and four in San Diego. So, yeah, I think uh, we covered a lot of ground after, you know, a bit of a hiatus here, Matt. So let's keep on the podcast with some more episodes coming down the way and, of course, do Indian Wells wrap-up in a week or so. So thank you for doing this. I know you've been busy. Uh, but uh, thanks again for the listeners to show uh, the patience that we haven't been at this forum since the U.S. Open. We plan to be, you know, back more active uh, towards the year end and produce more shows as we go along. Absolutely, Sakib. And there will be written coverage of uh, Indian Wells at tennisaccent.com. All right. Thanks, guys. And we'll be back with another show. It's Sakib and Matt signing off. Bye for now. <laughs>